Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Gosh, it's Brent Musburger and Frank Gifford and, and uh, Keith Jackson. And then I looked over at Paul. I said, you know what? We're, we're calling this next game. This, this Something's wrong with this picture. But it's just <laughs> amazing, all the history. And to think that you're there making some of that history now, it's pretty incredible. I'm Jack Collinsworth, and welcome to the ND on NBC podcast. Notre Dame is 2-0 and after putting a whooping on South Florida. Brian Kelly is done being the nice guy, which I thought was such a cool halftime speech. You know, historically, anybody who follows Notre Dame football knows that they can go up about 31-7 to on a team. Before you know it's 31-21 to or it's 31-24, to and it's a game going into the late third quarter, early fourth quarter. And BK has lived through enough of those situations and does not want to go back through them. So when he gave that speech at halftime, it was a challenge to the group to say, I want to shut out, A, and I want to continue to extend the lead, B. Uh, and he did so by getting all the running backs involved, and that seems to be one of his favorite things, get that offensive line going, multiple tight ends, and then rotate all the running backs. It's exactly what he did. I think it was a perfect, you know, I don't think BK could be happier. Let's leave it at that. So as Notre Dame now enters a phase where they're trying to get the case numbers to come way down, postpone the game this weekend, it seemed like a good opportunity to introduce you to one of the voices of Notre Dame football and Tony Dungy, who's just one of the best people that you could ever be around. I mean, he's one of the one of the guys you could share an Uber with and you're sitting in the back and you just go, this is a really special moment to be able to spend five minutes with Tony Dungy. Uh, and he did us one better here. He gave us about 25 minutes of his time to just tell you some stories, coaching Peyton Manning, the introduction of the Tampa 2, how he ended up leaving Tampa, winning a Super Bowl championship, uh, and his faith in family life, which is such a big deal to coach uh, and to anybody who knows him. So without further ado, one of the greatest coaches to ever do it, the Hall of Famer, Tony Dungy. So our next guest is a world champion head coach and a Hall of Fame human being. And Coach Dungy, I want to start with the Irish, with the Notre Dame football team. What's been your first impression of getting to call Notre Dame games through a couple of weeks? Well, Jack, I think the first thing you get is a sense of how special these young men are. Uh, when we get a chance to talk to them in the production meetings, you find out about their families why they went to Notre Dame, what they're looking forward to. It's just awesome. You see some of the stories, Sean Crawford, you know, talking about six years and coming back and being part of something special and he and Ian Book being roommates and trying to lead the team. And then I'll tell you, even my first week, 
uh, Mike Tarico is showing me around campus and we run into Tommy Tremble's family. And you talk about a special family. And just th those, uh, I think besides the football and the atmosphere, that's what's really stuck out to me, just how special these young men are. How about just the Notre Dame coaching staff? We get to do those weekly Zoom meetings, get to know them pretty well. What stood out just getting to know their personalities? Well, I, I didn't know Clark Lee at all. And just being around him, I'm telling you, Jack, we better enjoy him while he's here because he's not going to be there long. This is a head coach. You can see it written all over him. The respect that the players have for him, not only his schemes and what he knows about football, but relating to the guys. And, you know, so many players have said, oh, I go into Coach Lee's office and just talk to him about life. And that, that's what you, you're looking for. If I had a son who's coming out of high school now, those are the kind of guys I want him to play for. Uh, Tommy Reese just reminds me so much of myself working for the coach that he played for and developing that relationship with Coach Kelly, becoming uh, kind of going from the big brother to the offensive coordinator. Um, it, it's been neat to see his development as well. And this whole year just feels like it's just a collision course with Clemson. Doesn't it just feel like all year long, everybody just in the back of their mind has this vision of the Clemson game. Uh, do you feel like this roster stacks up well? What, what do you think just about the, the athletes that they have in the building there? Well, I, I feel that too, Jack. And, you know, we can say it. Uh, obviously, the Notre Dame players and coaches aren't going to say it. They can look at every week and say, you know, we should win this game. We should win this game. If we do what we're supposed to, we'll win this game. And it is all pointing to that matchup with Clemson. And what's been neat about it is we're, we're really getting, Notre Dame's getting some uh, previews. You know, we saw Chase Bryce and that read option, zone read, RPO attack in the first week. We saw Coach uh, Scott, who came from Clemson with that up-tempo, fast pace. So they're getting practice, uh, even though the coaches won't say it. It's been good, good work for eventually when they do see Clemson. And I, I do believe they have the people to match up with them. I really do. Yeah, and, and they had to postpone this week, obviously, with the, a rise in the COVID cases. Again, how hard do you think it would be to coach a football team in this year? I, I am really amazed. You know, we spoke to Coach Kelly before the opening day, and he said, I've, I've done more this year coaching life and coaching what we have to do, coaching protocol and talking to these kids. And we heard his post-game comments after the South Florida game. Hey, make sure you wear your mask, stay on top of things, don't relax. And so you're coaching that as much as you're coaching X's and O's. And then I don't know how you deal with the uncertainty. You know, we walk in uh, last week and they tell us, hey, Maris Livfile can't play, Simon can't play, and uh, they're, they're going to start a young guy who's never played at, at weak side linebacker. And you say, gosh, how do you even deal with that, you know, 20 minutes before the game? Uh, but that's what it's all about this year, being flexible, adjusting, being ready. Uh, we, we saw even in the game, you know, Sebo Flemister didn't play much the first week, and he got a bunch of carries in the second week. And that's I think that's going to be all year, managing your team, keeping guys into it, making sure that you have a lot of players ready to go because you're never going to know when you need them. It is. And I, this, this Notre Dame job to me is so perfect for you. It's, it's funny. I sit down there on the sidelines sometimes and I have the IFB and I'm just listening. I just get lost 
and you call a Notre Dame football game. I'm like, I cannot believe Coach Dungy is sitting here calling Notre Dame games. And then I got to click back in and go, wait a minute, I'm working here too. <laughs> I know. It is so much fun, Jack, and I can't believe it myself. I, I love college football. I've watched it. Uh, I've had a son who played college football. Uh, but to, to think that you're broadcasting it uh, is, is crazy. But then at Notre Dame with all the history and the like, I'll tell you what blew me away. Paul Burmeister and I are getting dressed and changing in the booth last week. And Notre Dame runs all these uh, promos on, on the big, beautiful scoreboard. Yep. So they're going back in history. And there's all these phenomenal calls from these big moments. And it's, gosh, it's Brent Musburger and Frank Gifford and, and uh, Keith Jackson. And then I looked over at Paul. I said, you know what? We're, we're calling this next game. This, this Something's wrong with this picture. But it's just amazing, all the history. And to think that you're there making some of that history now, it's pretty incredible. It is. And it's been so fun to watch you connect with all of these players and all of these coaches. And I think – you know, you have this shared love of football and also of faith. Uh, it's so important to you. Uh, how did you come to be so strong in your faith, Coach? You know, Jack, it was really my mom and dad. Growing up, my mother just, she was a Sunday school teacher, and she would practice her lessons on us. And so I'd hear all the Bible stories, and, and she'd get us prepared for, for Sunday. And if it, it went well and we could understand it, then she knew it was going to be a good lesson. Uh, so I grew up with that. But it really, uh, and I can remember my mom just over and over, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And this is Matthew 16, 26, when I was five, six, eight years old, 10 years old. And it kind of, I understood it, but I really didn't grasp it until I got to my, my rookie year with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I, I sit down in the first meeting and Chuck Knoll, you know, is sitting down with us and he says, welcome to the National Football League. You're getting paid to play football, but don't make football your life. If you make football your whole life, you're going to be disappointed when you leave the game. And I remember thinking, man, he sounds like my mother. <laughs> but that was his message. And then he put me in a room with Donnie Shell. And Donnie Shell was a great player, about a fourth year strong safety at that point. I was changing positions, going from quarterback to defensive back. And, trying to learn from him. So I'm asking him all these questions and he's telling me about the Bible and faith and life and marriage and things that, that I just was like blown away. So that's when I really started growing as a 21 year old. And I saw what coach Noel was talking about. I saw guys come into the league, just totally focused on football only and may have a tremendous career, go to Super Bowls, all those things, but be disappointed when they left. And so I said, you know what? Coach Noel's right. My mom's right. I got to develop this faith. And uh, to me, that was one of the greatest things, Jack. I couldn't believe it. We got to the game. Mike Tirico showed me around at 1230 in the stadium. Coach Lee is bringing this big group of players into the 50-yard line, and they have a prayer circle out there. And he said he does it all, all the time because he wants the guys to focus on what's really important just before they go out and play. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, it's been phenomenal. It really has. How about just listening to some of the players talk about being able to play for Coach Lee, too, and the way he starts the meetings with something that's not even related to football. I mean, you have to do – so many of the things we hear have to resonate so well with you, Coach. Yeah. I love it because that was me, you know, trying to pass that on to my players as well. Hey, yeah, we can get some life lessons that trans 
late to football and they're going to help us be better players, but they're going to help us live better. And uh, gosh, uh, Art Rooney Sr. was our owner in, in Pittsburgh. Great, great man. And he talked about, hey, welcome to the Steelers. You're part of it. This is going to be great. But don't just concentrate on the football field. Make Pittsburgh a better place to live. And that message came through to me. And I tried to get that across to my players. And so when you, you talk about that and then you hear the Notre Dame players talk about their coaches and how, how they're doing the same thing, enjoy this life, enjoy college, make the campus a better place to live. Um, we, we saw Dalen Hayes and, and he talked about, hey, getting our group together this summer with everything that was going on in the country, how can we make Notre Dame a better place to, to be? And so walking with the coaches and just walking arm in arm and then going to the conflict resolution center and talking to fifth and sixth graders, how, how do you resolve conflicts? How do we get through this? And that's, that's what life's all about. It really is. And it, they have such a clear vision of that right now. Coach, yes. you mentioned your players. Uh, what's your favorite memory when you look back on it? What's one of your favorite memories as a coach? It's funny. Uh, and we've got our, our next game is Florida State. And, uh, you know, we had so many great Florida State players on our Tampa Bay Buck team. Derek Brooks was one of them. His son is a linebacker for Florida State now. And I'm looking down the roster saying, oh, man, DeKalen Brooks, he was born, you know, when I was coaching Derek. But I remember the first meeting that I had with the Bucks, and I'm going to try to do the same thing that Coach Noel did with us. I'm going to emphasize what we're going to be all about as a team. So I go in and say, hey, I'm your new coach, and I'm here. We're, we're going to win a Super Bowl. That's our goal. We're going to play well. But if that's all we do, you guys won't remember it. And We've got to do more than that. We've got to make Tampa a better place to live. We've got to be role models. I've got little boys. They look up to you guys. We want to lead them the right way. I go on for 45 minutes about what we're going to do in the community and everything. Derek Brooks is a second-year player. He comes into my office after the meeting. He says, hey, Coach, all that was great, but do you know I lost more games last year with the Bucks than I lost in my whole life? And I need to know how we're going to win. <laughs> and I said, Derek, well, that is how we're going to win. We're going to win on and off the field and being strong character guys and being together and being unified. That's how we're going to win. And he got it. He really got it. Uh, the next year, he came back into my office and he said, you know what, coach? I want to make a difference in this area. I, I'm, I've been at this boys and girls club. I've been hanging out with the kids and it's not enough just to give them tickets to the game and say, come see us. I want to make a difference in their life. So he started, uh, and this was 1998. He started what he called the Brooks Bunch. And he went into this inner city boys and girls club in Tampa and he got them together and he said, you know what? If you will do a few things that I ask you, I'll take you anywhere you want to go in this summer at the end of the, the school year. And the kids kind of looked up and they said, wow, they, you know, that sounds like a deal. What do we have to do? And he said, well, here's all you have to do. No unexcused absences from school, no disrespect to parents, no disrespect to teachers, no trouble with the law, no drugs and alcohol, 3.5 grade average. You do that, we'll go anywhere you want to go. So he had, I think the first year he had about 11 kids who did that. And they wanted to go to Atlanta and see Dr. Martin Luther King's birthplace. So Derek got a bus, took them all up there, had a great time. They came back to the Boys and Girls Club and said, hey, you know what, Mr. Brooks, he's, he's real with this. This was a great deal. So the next year, they had about 13 kids 
that made it through and did all of those things. And they went to Washington, D.C. And they came back and they said, hey, this is awesome. So the next year they had 20 kids. And they said they wanted to go to South Africa and see where Nelson Mandela and where that cell was and everything. So Derek comes back into my office and said, Coach, I need some help now. <laughs> my wife and I, we ended up going as chaperones with Derek. He took 20 kids to South Africa. It was one of the best trips I've ever had. And those kids are now coming out of medical school and coming out of, of law school and uh, had never been out of Tampa some of them and it was just amazing but that is the kind of impact that 20 years later we look back and say you know what Th this was special this was more than football yeah, way more than football and i think that really your legacy is going to be so much more than football but football is a huge part of your legacy too so take me to the origin of the tampa two and some of the on-field stuff that you <laughs> put tampa up near the top of the league this is another unbelievable story, Jack, about how God is just good for you uh, and setting things up that you can't even understand. 19, well, I started out in 1977. Uh, I was a quarterback in college. Uh, I don't get drafted. I thought I was going to get drafted. The Pittsburgh Steelers call me and say, hey, we've got Terry Bradshaw. We don't really need quarterbacks, but we think you can switch position. So I wanted to play with the best. And I had a chance to go to Canada, but I said, no, uh, something. I just want to play with the best. I'm going to go to Pittsburgh. Everybody's telling you, you won't make it. They've got receivers. You know, you're not going to be a receiver there. They got all pro defensive backs. You have no chance to make this team. Well, I, I ended up making it and learning cover two from Coach Noel and Bud Carson. Bud was the defensive coordinator. He actually brought it from Georgia Tech. So this was 1977. Learned all about it. I end up staying on the coaching staff eight years. And then I go to Minnesota. I'm the defensive coordinator with Denny Green. And we're putting this together. And I said, I want to bring this Pittsburgh system, this cover two that we played years ago. And Denny says, great. So I'm there and we've got Hall of Fame players, Chris Dolman, John Randall. We've got some great players. But we're starting to try to get secondary and linebackers. Denny coached a guy named John Lynch at Stanford and loved him. And we're trying to draft John Lynch. Tampa Bay takes him ahead of us. So I'm a little disappointed because Denny saw he'd been perfect fit for this. Well, the next year, 1995, the draft comes. We've got the 11th pick, and Warren Sapp is going to be a top three player. And Denny says, don't even, don't even look at him. We, we don't have a chance to get him. Well, some things start to come out. You know, he might be tough to coach, might have some things off the field. Denny says, you better look at him because he might, I'm hearing he might be there at the 11th pick. So I started looking at this guy and my jaw drops at just how good he is and how athletic he's perfect for us. We've got John Randall already. If we get this guy, nobody's going to be able to block us. He's like Aaron Donald at, at, at that point coming out of uh -huh. college. So we get there and, and Saturday morning before the draft, Denny says, we just got some more information. We can't take Warren Sapp. So sure enough, it happens. We have a chance to pick him. We don't take him. The next pick, Tampa takes him. And I said, man, not only do we not get him, I'm going to play against this guy for the next 15 years. This is horrible. So now I started to focus on another, this Florida State linebacker, Derek Brooks. He's perfect for us. He's going to be like Jack Ham. Tampa jumps up ahead of us, makes a trade with Philadelphia and takes him. So now, Jack, I'm, I don't even want to see the rest of the draft. I lost my two favorite guys. They both are going to Tampa. And wouldn't you know it, six months later or eight months later, I get named head coach of the Bucks, and John Lynch, Derek Brooks, and Warren Sapp are sitting there waiting. 
Wow. So I go to them and, and say, I bring them all in. Hey, we're going to put this defense in. It's going to be perfect for you. You got to be strong up the middle. You are Jack Ham, Joe Green, and Donnie Shell. You guys are going to do it, and you're going to love this defense. Uh, so we put it in from the 1973 Steeler playbook in 1998, 25 years later. We put it in, and everybody thinks it's Tampa, too, but it's Pittsburgh Steelers cover two all the way. Wow. Wow. So, so everybody that said, you know, Warren Sapp, you can't take him for whatever it was off the field. Once you get there, once you meet Warren Sapp, what changed your mind? He, well, he, you know, the, our scouts, we did the work on him. They said, you know what? He is hard to deal with. He's a smart guy. He yep. doesn't always march to your beat, but he's the first guy in the practice field. He's the hardest worker. He sets the tone for the D-line. And I saw that on tape. So I went down and I said, hey, Warren, here, here's what I'm hearing about you. And he knew the story. He knew I wanted to take him at Tampa. So that, that definitely, or when I was at Minnesota, so that helped. But I said, you know what? If we're going to win a Super Bowl, you got to be Joe Green. You got to be not only a great player on the field, but you got to be one of our leaders off the field. And you and I have got to be on the same page. And he said, coach, I want to win. Just tell me what to do. And uh, Derek said the same thing. John Lynch said the same thing. So those three guys, I said, you're going to hold each other accountable. And if we get this thing together, you're going to be a great defense. And, and to their credit, they, they did, including Warren. They, they towed the line and did everything from a team standpoint that we wanted. Coach, I'm not sure I'll ever understand how, how you got out of Tampa, how Tampa let you out of that. <laughs> that's that's well, one of the great mysteries of the world. You may have to help me out there. It was raised expectations. Uh, we went uh, that when I got there, they'd had 13 straight losing seasons. I think most of them double digit losing seasons. And so uh, no one was used to winning. No one was used to good teams. I think our second home game, we might have had 25,000 people at the game. Nobody cared. We got it going. We started winning. The next year, we drafted Warwick Dunn and Redell Anthony, two Blazers that gave us big plays on offense. So we got to the playoffs. And now, we were packing out the stadium, 75,000 people. Everybody's excited about the Bucks. We make the playoffs three, four years in a row, but we don't get to the Super Bowl. And so we went from, hey, if we just make the playoffs, that'd be great, to, hey, we got to win the Super Bowl. And I think our owners just got a little impatient. And, hey, I don't think you're the guy to take us and put us over the top. And, uh, you know, they made a decision. And it hurt. It was, it was tough because – that was our plan to develop a really good team that's going to be competitive every year. And uh, when they let me go, it, it was painful. But I think, again, it was just the Lord had something in store for me. Uh, six weeks later, I'm in Indianapolis uh, coaching the, the Colts and get hooked up with Peyton Manning. So it wasn't all bad. So, so when you get hooked up with Peyton Manning, how are you able to use your defensive mind as a coach to help him on the offensive side of the ball? Jack, that was the biggest thing. Peyton, they, they had had great offenses, kind of suspect defenses, and he had gotten to the point where he thought he had to win every game. He didn't yeah. want to punt. If we punt, uh, we may not see the ball back, or if we get it back, we're going to be seven points behind. So I've got to – and he was, you know, fantastic, but he was forcing things and trying to make things happen. I think he threw 28 or 29 interceptions the year before I got there. So I had to convince him, hey, if we take care of the football, we're not going to lose our explosiveness, but we're going to be sound and we're going to be solid. We're going to win the turnover battles and we're going to build a defense that can help win games. And, and you've got to trust me on that. And he did. He went from 
you know, 30 touchdowns and 28 interceptions to 49 touchdowns three years later and nine interceptions. And when he started playing like that, we we were going to be in the hunt every year. And then we finally, uh, our 2006 year, uh, we have uh, a great playoff run. We beat Baltimore 15 to six with five field goals because he trusted the process. And hey, there's some games we, we don't need to be explosive. Some games we just have to win. There's other games. The next week we're playing New England. We're down 21-6. Now we've got to be explosive. And we end up winning that 38-34. So I think that was the biggest thing, just getting across to him, you know what, we can win shootouts, but we're going to be able to win low-scoring games too if we play together. What do you think really allowed you two to connect and, and for Peyton to trust you and for you to trust Peyton so quickly? I think we both love the game and we both could talk football. And so to sit down and talk about things and say, hey, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to put this together. And he could appreciate that. So when we'd have these discussions, he'd say, oh, yeah, okay, I I understand now. That makes sense. And once he bought into it, then everybody was going to buy into it. Yeah. How about the biggest argument you ever got into with Peyton? You guys ever get into it? (laughs) We did. We did. And it was ongoing for like six years. Uh, And it was family Saturday. It was a tradition that I learned from Coach Noel with the Steelers. Everybody brought their kids to practice. The kids got to come out on the field. Coach Noel wanted Saturday to be nice and relaxed. But he wanted your family to know where dad worked and that they were part of it. So I can remember, you know, when I was young, during offensive period, I would have John Stallworth's son on my lap. And then during defensive period, he'd have my kids. And that's just the way we did it. Uh-huh. So I come to Indy. I'm going to put this in. And Peyton is like, we can't do that. Saturday, he's got this yellow legal pad of every play that wasn't perfect Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And he wants to run them all on Saturday. And I said, okay, we can run all these plays. But, you know, the kids are going to be out there. He's like, no, no, can't you just leave them in the locker room? It's okay for them to be here, but can't they just stay in the locker room? I say, Peyton, Family Saturday won a lot of Super Bowls, so we're going to be okay. So grudgingly, he went along with it. But about every three or four weeks, he'd come to me, Coach, we just can't, how about the locker room? Can we just keep them in the locker room? For They went on for six years until we finally won a Super Bowl. Well, fast forward. Years later, I'm working at NBC. He's at Denver. He has twins now. And Sam Flood, our our producer, sends me out to Denver to interview him. We're going to have them on the opening night. So I go out there, and before I can even get in the locker room, Brandon Stokely, who also played for us, runs up to me. He said, you're never going to guess what Peyton did. You will never believe it. I said, what did he do? He went to Coach Fox, and he said, we've got to institute family Saturday. We've got to have the kids. The kids have to know where the dad works. And I thought, man, we have come full circle. And that's when you know, Coach. What is what a special you know. moment. What a special moment. Uh, you, of course, end up in the Super Bowl with Indy. What were you thinking when Devin Hester returns the opening kickoff for a touchdown? I'll tell you that story, too. We, You know, you have two weeks to prepare for the Super Bowl. The first week is in in your hometown and then you go down to to miami for the second week so all the first week we look at the tape they don't have a lot of offensive weaponry devin hester is their guy he makes things happen he gets the field position makes the big plays we talk all week don't let him touch the ball we're going to pooch it we're going to kick it in the corners we're going to punt out of bounds we're going to dribble it and that was our plan all week so now we get to friday night before the game our chaplain 
gives a message and he talks about David and Goliath. So why do you think David got Goliath? Because he wasn't afraid. He went right at him. Everybody else ran and was afraid. He went right at Goliath. Yeah. And so I started thinking, man, we can't be afraid of Devin Hester. This is the Super Bowl. <laughs> so I tell the guys on Saturday, I hope we lose the toss. We're going to go right at him. We're going to kick it right down the middle. When we pound Hester, they're going to know we mean business. It'll be just like Goliath. They'll they'll drop dead. So we lose the toss. We kick off right down the middle. He runs it back for a touchdown. <laughs> Everybody on the sideline turns around and look at me. Whose dumb idea was that? <laughs> the Devin Hester. And I talked to the chaplain afterwards. He said, no, you got the wrong message out of that. You weren't supposed to kick the Devin Hester. <laughs> <laughs> so, that wasn't he's talking about yeah he said i had a different point it's you got to know where the weak spot is he hit him right between the eyes they'll go for the weak spot i said i wish you'd have made that more clear in the message <laughs> that's that's just the classics it's it's this wet sloppy game and it's in miami so it's the yeah. opposite of everything you would have thought how do you remember another peyton manning story on that yeah. and my little uh i got a 14-year-old that's quarterback now that picked up on it. But Peyton, meticulous about everything. We're in Indianapolis. This is two weeks before the Super Bowl. And he's telling me the long-term forecast, there might be rain. Can we practice with wet balls? I said, Peyton, I live in Florida. It's not going to rain. There's been 40 Super Bowls. It's never rained. We're, no, we're not practicing with wet balls. But he was insistent. We practiced three days with wet balls. And sure enough, it rained and poured all, all game. But that's that's Peyton Manning in a nutshell. It really is. And then I'm I'm curious, how does how does you know Tony Dungy celebrate a world championship? How do you celebrate the Super Bowl? That was so special. Of course, you have the party and everything all set up, but it took me a long time to leave the stadium. Uh, they had so many people that want to interview after the game and they want to get everything and all the post game shows and Craig Kelly was our PR guy at the time. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, Oh, we got a break. We got to cut. I, I said, Craig, I'm going to answer every question. I'm going to do every show because for years I've had to explain why we lost the last game, why we lost to the Patriots, what happened. I said, now I'm, I'm going to take advantage of this. So I must've stayed two hours with the whole team stayed. We're just kind of in the locker room, looking at the trophy, rehashing things, talking to one another, and you know trying to dry off and get dry but it was just it was fantastic and then we got on the bus and went back to the hotel we had of course the big party set up and you're just with your families and going around saying thank you to everybody and everybody who contributed so now it's about four o'clock in the morning and craig says well 7 30 we've got to go to the the press conference they have the head coach the most valuable player and you know, the, the morning press conference. So I'll be picking you up about 7.30. So I told my wife, Lauren, well, it's four o'clock now. Why, why go to sleep? <laughs> so we just talked <laughs> about the last 30 years and, and moving around and going from place to place and the disappointments and kids and family. And uh, we ended up just talking for the next three hours and reliving 30 years of life. And it was great. Wow. So, so what time did you finally end up going to sleep? Never did. Never did. I went straight to the press conference without going to sleep that night. <laughs> I bet that was a hell of a press conference, Coach. Oh, it was. It was, you know, it was special. And, you know, Peyton yeah. was the MVP and uh, first African-American quarterback to, to, or excuse me, first African-American coach to, to win a Super Bowl. Just 
all of those special moments. And I, I was just so thankful. I said, Lord, how does this happen? Jackson, Michigan, you know, 30,000 people in, in the town to, to coach in the Super Bowl team. It just shouldn't happen, but it was, it was pretty special. Yeah, one, one of the moments, and I was, you know, 11 years old at the time, but one of the moments I really remember was the team prayer right after the game in the locker room. How did yeah. that come together? We, we do that after every game. We, we come back in, we have a prayer before we let the media in. Mm -hmm. Well, the Super Bowl is different. The media is crashing in and, and they want to get the stories right away. So we're kind of mingling in the locker room and doing interviews and cameras are there. And one of our players said, Coach, you know, we have finished every game with the team prayer. We didn't get a chance to do it. We really ought to do this. So uh, I said, you know what? You're right. And I asked everybody to turn their cameras off and, and turn their tape recorders off. Let us do the prayer and then we'll resume, you know, the celebration. And one person didn't follow those directions. One guy taped it. And I was so mad to, to begin with, but it turned out to be great because, you know, the entire country got to see it and it showed our, our character of our team and what it's all about. And, and it really ended up, I've got the picture on my wall up here somewhere. As a matter of fact, I don't know yeah. if you can see that. But that is the picture of it. Right it there. Just, yeah, it was just a fabulous moment for us and one that I'll never forget. So then what, what winds up being the biggest factor uh, when you decide to step away from coaching? You're still obviously a young guy. You could have done it for another 20 years if you wanted to. What, what made you decide that this is time? Yeah, I, I started Jack at 25. And uh, I'd coached 28 years then. I was getting ready to turn 54. My wife and I had been married for, gosh, 25 plus years at, at that time. And I just felt like for my family, it, it was time. Jim Caldwell was our assistant head coach. I knew he was ready to go. I knew we had a Super Bowl-ready team. And I wanted him to have some success, too. I, I didn't want to leave the cupboard bare when I left. Mm. So... I just, my wife and I talked, we prayed about it and we felt like that was the right time. I ended up getting the job with NBC, which was perfect for me. Jim took them to the Super Bowl. It was a Super Bowl ready team. And, and so it was just perfect timing. And you mentioned your wife, coach, and you guys have had such a special relationship and a, and a relationship seems to be so based in faith. Uh, so when did you guys first decide we, we want to adopt kids? When, when did that first happen for you? It, it was crazy. My wife and I met in Pittsburgh. Uh, I, I actually did a father and son breakfast uh, at her church. I was the guest stealer and the minister introduced me to her. And uh, so we hit it off right away. We yeah. got married. She was from a large family. Um, I, we always wanted kids, but we didn't know how the Lord was going to do that. And then we got down to Tampa. We had three kids already and, uh, shoot our oldest was, at that time was like 17 and our youngest was eight and so i'm feeling pretty good we, we, we've got a pretty neat family but she says no no we we can do more to help people and let's look into this adoption thing so we did and i found out that there were uh, a lot of people in the tampa area that were really pro-life and they were encouraging women not to have abortions and saying hey if you will take this pregnancy through the full term we'll find families for your your, your child and they came to us my wife investigated it and they said you know what we are really facing a shortage of adoptive parents and especially african-american parents 
Mm. And I, I couldn't believe it. I said, are, are you serious? And they said, oh, no, we, we promised these uh, women that we will place their children and we're, we're struggling. We've got a backup. And so in 2000, we ended up adopting a little boy uh, and it was just it was special and it was unique. Uh, but we saw the need and we saw that there were other kids there. So we've ended up adopting seven more since then. And it, it's been uh, keeps me going, keeps me working. That's for sure. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. Wow. So I'm, how do you end up finding a house to be able to have 10 bedrooms? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my little sanctuary here, my, my office. And as NBC was getting ready for this COVID situation and saying, hey, we might have to broadcast from your house. I said, this is the only place I can put it. The kids aren't allowed in here. Any place else is going to be too noisy. But yeah, we've added on to our house about three times. We've got six <laughs> bedrooms now. And uh, uh, Jordan is, is 20. He's about ready to move out. But we've got him 20, uh, 19. Let me see if I can get this right. 20, 19, 14, 10, 8, 6, 6, and 5. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty noisy in here. If you catch me after 3 o'clock, it's pretty noisy. I, I bet it is. I bet, I bet you got a heck of a quarantine, Coach. What's it like quarantining with all the you kids? You know what? When we did it, this summer, it was pretty – cool because they had their own group it wasn't like most kids were gosh we, we don't have anybody to play with uh we have basketball court in the driveway swimming pool in the backyard trampoline so they were hanging with each other and we got to do a lot of family stuff together and uh especially in florida where they said you can't have groups of more than 10 people so we couldn't go see anybody else we had a group of 10 already so uh, we, we pretty much stayed with ourselves and, and did it together but i think it brought us closer together that's right. Well, Coach, it is the honor of a lifetime to get to work with you. And I really appreciate you taking some time today to come impart some wisdom on our audience. Oh, it's been special. And Jack, you're doing a great job. It's been awesome working with you. And uh, as you can see, the, the, the NBC family is pretty special. And uh, we're glad to have you as part of it. Very special. Thank you, Coach. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.